If you have your Bible, I wish you would open it to the book of Numbers, fourth book in the Bible, and find chapter number 13, Numbers chapter number 13. We're going to be thinking tonight about the time when God told Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land. The children of Israel up until this point had come out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness, and it was getting close to time for them to move into the promised land. At least geographically, it was getting close. And so Moses sent the spies into the land to see what they could see, and then they brought back the report of what indeed it was that they had seen. So in Numbers chapter 13, let's just dive right in tonight and see what we can learn. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. And so Moses does that. He sends out one spy, one man from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. Of interest is in verse 6, we read about Caleb, and in verse 8, we read about Joshua. His name is is spelled with an H in verse 8, but if you look at the end of verse 16, it says, And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So the two spies that we're the most familiar with are Caleb and Joshua. There were ten others, and we have their names recorded here, but we're more familiar, of course, with Caleb and with Joshua. And so Moses sent them out, and they begin now to go into the promised land. Now, beginning in verse 23, we read something very interesting. It said, Then they came to the valley of Eshcol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. And so this cluster of grapes is so big that two of these spies, I've always thought of it as Caleb and Joshua, not sure which two it were, probably them. They each had one end of that pole, and they're carrying these grapes along with them uh, through the land there. It's absolutely a beautiful place where they had gone. Verse 24, the place was called the Valley of Eshcol, and that word literally means cluster, because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And so they spent 40 days spying it out, and then they go back to Moses. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. Literally, it has an abundance of food. That's what it, they were saying. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. And they showed Moses these grapes, this huge cluster of grapes that they had brought back from Eshcol. Now, remember, on Wednesday nights, we're thinking about some of the lessons that we learn in the wilderness seasons of life. Those times in life where it doesn't seem like we're making any progress. Those times in life where it seems like we're just going around in circles. We do the same thing today we did yesterday and the same thing yesterday we did last week. And we look at our lives and we think, I don't think I'm making any progress. I'm in the wilderness. I have no clear direction for my life. I don't sense God's presence. I don't sense God leading me. I just feel like I'm wandering around in the wilderness. And all of us have had times like that. Now tonight, 
the big lesson, I have several little things we'll see from the Scriptures, but the big lesson I want us to see tonight is this. In the wilderness, here's what we learn, that God has more in mind for us than we are currently experiencing. In fact, that's the first point in your outline. Look at it. God has more in mind for us than we are currently experiencing. Until these 12 spies went into the promised land, they didn't see the milk and honey. They didn't see the cluster of grapes. They didn't see the abundance of food. They didn't see the beauty of the land. They didn't see any of that. And so when they went into the land, the first thing that had to come into all of their minds is simply this. There's more here than there is in the wilderness. And that says to me that wherever we may be in our lives, one of the things we need to remember is that God has more in mind for us than we are currently experiencing. I think about all the passage in the Scripture. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's something about that desire to know God better and to know God more. Paul, in that Roman prison in Philippians chapter 3 said that I may know him. Paul has this hunger, this desire to experience more of Christ than he had currently experienced. In Psalm 42, the psalmist said, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. There was a hunger and there was a thirst for more. It's a dangerous place, or we're in a dangerous place, when we say, I have all of God that I want. I know all of the Bible that I need to know. I've learned all of the lessons that I need to learn. Uh, you know, I've been around for a long time. I've been through a lot of things, and I've already been there and done that, and I've got the lessons, and now I'm just trying to help everybody else in their lives. Well, we should help other people, but we should also remember in our own lives, God has more in mind for us than we have experienced. More opportunities, uh, more victories, more peace, more joy, more contentment. More ha There's more than we have experienced. Years ago, I read about an experience that took place in either England or Scotland. And my sources today, as I was consulting them, one said England and one said Scotland. It was one of the two places. But they were having a Christian service like we're having tonight. I'm not sure if it was a one-time, like just a Wednesday night service or a Sunday morning service, or maybe it was a revival, or maybe it was a crusade. I don't know the nature of it, but they were having a service, and as is customary, the preacher preached the sermon, and then you give the invitation, and people are given an opportunity to respond. On this particular occasion, the preacher preached, the invitation was given, people were invited to come and make their decisions for the Lord. One man, a young man, came down the aisle and met with one of the ministers there, and he said to the minister, this is one of the greatest quotes that I ever learned in my life, he said to the minister this, there's got to be more to the Christian life than I've experienced. Now, this man was already saved, but he said to the minister, there's got to be more to the Christian life than I've experienced. There's got to be more to it than this. I know I'm saved, but there's got to be more to being a Christian than what I've experienced. That minister was so moved by this young man's passion and sensitivity and, and desire to know God more, his heart for God, that the minister said after the occasion to another minister, that young man 
who came down that aisle and said to me, there's got to be more to the Christian life than I've experienced. The minister said this, one day the world will hear from that man. And that young man was Billy Graham. And the world did hear from him. But one of the reasons that the world heard from him is that after he had been saved and he was up in his young adult years, he had in his heart a desire to know God better and to know God more. And so I'm saying to you tonight, there's more in mind. God has more in mind for you than you're currently experiencing. Now, here's the key on this this point. We have to let God be the one who determines what the more is. Sometimes you know, somebody, a person could hear this point here and say, God has more in mind for me. I wonder what that means. That may mean God has more money in mind for me. Or that may mean that God has a better job in mind for me. You know, you could just make whatever application you wanted to make. And I would say in response to that, that may all be true. But the main thing, the main more that God has in mind for you and for me is that we would develop a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Him and that we could know Him better. And so that's the first lesson we learned. They see all this beautiful scenery and all this food, and they knew that God had more in mind for them. The second thing I learned out of this passage is simply this. Even though God has more in mind, there's the milk and honey and the the fruit and the grapes and all the things But remember this, God allows us to face obstacles along the way. Wouldn't it be nice if on our way to the more, whatever that is, for Billy Graham, it was certainly what God did in his heart, but in his particular case, it was a ministry where he preached the gospel to multiplied millions of people. Well, we don't always know what God has in mind for us, but we do know this, as we're moving in the direction of the promised land, we will encounter obstacles along the way. Now look in verse 28. Because in verse 27, they're talking about the land flowing with milk and honey and so on. But in verse 28, the very first word in that verse, nevertheless. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And so the Twelve spies bring back this report, and they say, man, the land is beautiful. It's more than we've ever experienced. Didn't have all that in Egypt. Certainly don't have it in the wilderness. This is incredible. But nevertheless, they said, there are giants living in that land. And what they were saying was the giants who are living in that land are so much bigger and stronger and tougher and more experienced than we are, there's no way in the world that we're going to be able to go in there, overthrow those giants, and possess the land. And so they faced an obstacle. Now, it's interesting, at least as I've thought about this today, these Israelites in the wilderness had already experienced several obstacles before they got to this point. For example, when they first came out of Egypt, the first obstacle they experienced was the Red Sea. The Red Sea stood between them and where they needed to go next. It was too uh, too far to swim across and, and, and much too deep to walk across. And so they're at the Dead Sea, and that's an obstacle. And yet what did they do? As they faced that obstacle, God divided the Red Sea, and they walked across. This same group of Israelites, that was in Exodus 14. In Exodus 16, they're in the wilderness, another obstacle. They don't have enough food to eat. That's a real problem. You can't live without food. What did God do? God opened a door and he sent a manna from heaven. Exodus 17, same group, another obstacle. They don't have any water to drink. 
They prayed, Moses prayed, and God caused water to come out of a rock, an obstacle, but God opened a door. It seems that in, in, in their lives and certainly in our lives, we can always see that an opportunity seems to be followed by an obstacle, but if we'll keep moving on by faith, God will open a door and make a way for us to go into the next season of our life or the next assignment of our life. Uh, whatever that might be. And yet here they are in the wilderness and they're seeing these giants and they're thinking there's absolutely no way that we can go through. Now, someone has wisely said that the door of opportunity swings on the hinges of adversity. Now you think about that. The door of opportunity swings on the hinges of adversity, and yet, if we'll just go on with God, God will always make a way. You still listen? Say amen. That's the first two things tonight. The next thing I see is this. As we're moving on towards the promised land, and we've encountered these obstacles, these giants, whatever they may be, God tests us to see if we will view the giants from His perspective or from our perspective. Now, these Israelites that came back to Moses, except for Joshua and Caleb, they viewed those giants from their perspective, and it caused them to be afraid, and it caused them to despair. Look in chapter 13 and verse 33, the very last verse of this chapter. It said, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak uh, came, from the, uh, came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers. Now, watch the next phrase, in our own sight. So when they looked at the giants and they compared themselves to those, those giants may have been seven, eight feet tall. They're like us, five foot eight, five foot ten, six foot one. But compared to giants, we're pretty small. So it says in our own sight, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. So sometimes in life, God will allow us to face a giant in our personal lives, um, in our financial lives, maybe in our health, maybe in a relationship. It's a giant. It's something bigger than us. It's, something we, it's a problem we can't fix. Remember this. Anytime in life you face a situation that you can't solve, a problem you can't solve, a situation you can't change, God has providentially allowed you to get in that situation to see if you will trust Him to do what you can't do. You know, if you think about it, if in life we only faced problems that we could fix, we would never really need to trust God. And so sometimes God says, I'm going to allow you, not that He causes it, but I'm going to allow you to get in a situation that you can't get yourself out of. It's just a mess, and you're not going to see any way through. And again, we see it all through Scripture this happens, but it also happens in our lives. And he's wanting to see, are you going to look at that from your perspective or from my perspective? If you look at it from your perspective, you're going to say, compared to that, I'm like a grasshopper. There's not anything I can do. But if you look at it from God's perspective, then... It's altogether different. I was thinking about our church today. This coming up Sunday is our friend day, and we're hoping to have 1,000 people in each of the morning services. We'll wait and see if that happens or not, but that's our, that's our hope. We're encouraging everybody to invite their friends or at least one or two friends, maybe all five of the friends that we wrote out, just to invite them to come to church with you uh, on Sunday. And as we have said, we're praying that in time, 
And this would take, certainly take time that we could have 15,000 people coming to church here on Sunday. Now, I just have to be honest with you. That would be 10% roughly of our community. When I think about that, 15,000 people coming to First Baptist Church Pasadena, that's a, that's a big vision. That's a, that's a huge goal. Now, that's never happened before. 15,000 people is a lot of people. From a human perspective, I, I think it's very easy to look at that and say, well, you know what, that's a great idea. That's a lofty goal. That's something to shoot for. 15,000 people, that's just not ever going to happen. Well, from a human perspective, I would agree with that. But from God's we have to remember in life, whether that ever happens or not, time will tell, and it's going to take more than time. It's going to take God. But remember this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we have to remember that as a church, and we have to remember that in our own families, in our own individual lives, that sometimes we get in a situation and we just say, no way. That's impossible. Well, I mean, when we get in a situation where we say that's impossible, what we're really saying is, God, that's impossible without you. But with you, all things are possible. Think about in the Bible all the impossible things that God did. At 90 years of age, Sarah became pregnant, well past childbearing age. In the New Testament, at a very advanced age, Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist. These things are impossible. Mary, a young virgin, she became pregnant. That is biologically impossible. I mean, all the things in the Bible that happen that we look at and say, that is impossible. All these people, all this little food, Jesus takes it and he feeds thousands of people. And they ha- it's impossible. Parting the Red Sea, it's impossible. Jesus walking on the water, it's Im- all these things, they're impossible from our perspective, but from God's perspective, they're possible. And so sometimes in our lives and sometimes at church, we get in a situation and we say, wow, from our perspective, this is an impossible thing, but from God's perspective, not at all. I wish I would have brought out a bulletin from last Sunday and I could give a more accurate number. But just to tell you what God is doing in our church now, this is extremely exciting. Going into last Sunday, and I, wish, I just wish I had a bulletin, there were well, 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 well over 100 people who so far this year have been saved and gone to the decision room and registered their decision. And as of last Sunday, after last Sunday, of that number, whether that's 150 or 175 or whatever that number is, of that number, over 100 people have already been baptized this year in the first, we're just barely into the eighth month of the year. And so in a day and in a season where any church just about that I have talked to, and I've talked to and followed quite a few, everybody's saying, Our church is running about 70% of what we ran before the pandemic. That's about standard. Some 65, some maybe 75, but most everybody's saying they're running about 70% of before the pandemic. But to think that during all that that's going on, to see that many people get saved, to me anyway, that is a very exciting thing and that is a very encouraging thing. And so remember this, in our lives, God will test us to see if we will view the giants from his perspective or from our own perspective. Pam, were you getting that number? Of Oh, it's the wrong bulletin. Okay, that's all right. That's okay. Well, it's a lot of people. I think it's 5,000 people who've already been saved this year, ministerially speaking. So, well, here we have somebody with a bulletin right there. We'll just get the exact number. Thank you so much, sir. 
Thank you. Yes, it certainly is. Last Sunday, give me just a minute. Make sure I'm telling the truth up here. Okay, it's better than I thought. Before we came to church last Sunday, since New Year's Day, 170 people have been saved. And I'll tell you what, it's more than that. It's more than 170. It's 170 who've been saved and gone to the decision room. When we give that invitation out here on Sunday, if 12 people in a service stand up that they got saved, usually about six of those go to the family room. And maybe the others will eventually go. But this is, uh, this is even better than I thought. So thank you so much. And I'm going to put this bulletin here so after the service you can get it back because you took good, ser- good notes on my dad's sermon. Those are great. Those are better than the notes he had, I can assure you. Because I saw his notes, and they were horrible. But these are good notes that you have right here. No, I'm just teasing. But anyway, maybe this is good that that we got to stop and pause for that. So look at the third point again. Remember this in the wilderness. One of the things that God is doing, whether it's in your business, your family, your connection group class, your Sunday school class, First Baptist Church Pasadena, whatever it might be, God is always testing us to see if we will view giants From his perspective or from our perspective? And if we view it from our perspective, we're going to get discouraged. We're going to feel like grasshoppers and we're going to get overwhelmed. But if we view it from God's perspective, you know what we're going to say? We're going to say it's no big deal to God. I was thinking of something the other day and then we'll get on to the next point. But I was thinking this. Sometimes in life we go through something And we say, this is overwhelming to me. If you ever felt that way, say amen. We all have. This is overwhelming to me. But remember this. It may be overwhelming to you, but it's not overwhelming to the God who lives in you. I mean, hey folks, he spoke a word and creation came into existence. Nothing is too hard for God. That's probably the main lesson of the Bible is that whatever you're facing, nothing is too hard for God. Look at it and see when you look at it from that perspective, it gives us faith, gives us hope, gives enthusiasm, gives excitement. We say, I don't know how it's going to work out, when it's going to work out, what it's going to look like. But I know when God gets finished with this, God will make it better than it was before. Psalm 138 and verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, simply says this, that God, it says, the Lord will perfect that, which concerns me. It's a tremendous verse to memorize. Say that with me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. You can translate that word perfect, complete, either way. But what, a, what an encouragement, encouragement to know that when we go through things in life that are imperfect and not complete, that God has promised to perfect it and to complete it, to make it right, if we'll just give him the time. Well, then the last thing I wanted to uh, show you tonight is simply this. God uses and blesses people who have a different spirit in them. Now, this is interesting. I pointed out Joshua and Caleb earlier. Look in chapter 13 and verse number 30, because we've got to spend just a moment thinking about Caleb. And, and what, what is being said here of Caleb is, it's, it's Joshua kind of goes right along with him. But in verse 30, the Bible says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. We're able. 
Those, those giants are not too much for They're bigger than us, but they're not bigger than God. They're overwhelming to us, but they're not overwhelming to God. Let us go. Everybody needs a Caleb in their corner. Somebody who says, hey, don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. Don't keep talking about those giants. Let us go up at once and take possession. We're well able to overcome it. And then go to chapter 14 and verse 24. And notice here what God says of Caleb. God said, my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So God says of Caleb, this man has a different spirit. And it's implied that Joshua did too because he, Caleb and Joshua were treated the same. But God looked at, at, at Caleb and God said his spirit is different than the spirit of all these other people. Beginning in verse 26 and through, the end of, through verse 38, God said you're, to the others, you're not going to make it into the, uh, into the promised land. In fact, if you look in verse 33, God said, Your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. God said to those ten spies and to that whole generation, you're going to die in the wilderness. You're never going to go into the promised land because you don't have that can-do spirit. You don't have that attitude. You don't have that heart like Caleb and Joshua. You're not going to make it in. According to the number, verse 34, of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. Why did they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Because they spent 40 days spying out the land, and the 40 years, were a, that was a punishment, really, for the 40 days. And of that generation, everybody died except for Joshua and Caleb. And in this passage, I'm not going to read all those verses, but in this passage, God said to them, your kids who you thought I couldn't take care of, and you kept wondering what's going to happen to our little ones. God said, here's what's going to happen to your little ones. You're going to die in the wilderness, and your little ones are going to go into the land flowing with milk and honey. And they're going to drink the milk, and they're going to enjoy the honey, and they're going to eat the grapes, and they're going to experience everything that you missed out on because you didn't have the can-do spirit. You didn't have that right attitude. You didn't, you didn't have that. You know, so much of life is our attitude. Here, Caleb has a different spirit. I think about Daniel, chapter 6 and verse 3 of his book. It says that an excellent spirit was in him. You know people, and so do I, who have an excellent spirit. And we also know people who have maybe not so excellent of a spirit. Or, and sometimes we're that way. Sometimes our spirit is excellent, and, and, and sometimes our spirit isn't excellent. Earlier today, I, I was reminded of the importance of an of an excellent spirit. I think an excellent spirit, first of all, is marked by humility. In fact, if you really want to get it really simple, humility and faith. These are the two things, humility and faith. I did a funeral today in Dickinson for a lady named Joanne Gus. Joanne and her husband, Harry, I've known for about 12 years or so. Their daughter, Karen, and her husband, Jim, faithful members of our church. Their granddaughter, Haley, now married and moved away, but she 
is from our church, and their son, Dustin, and his wife now live in Los Angeles, and he is the one who is the kicker for the Los Angeles Chargers, NFL kicker. And so today, I hadn't seen Dustin in a while, and so I was excited to see him today, and he gave the eulogy on behalf of all eight of the grandchildren, and um, it was really a, a neat a neat thing. And as he was talking about his grandmother today, now here's a guy who's an NFL kicker. I always want to say to Dustin when I see him, Dustin, are you sending your tithes to your home church? Or are you sending your tithes to somewhere? I mean, an NFL kicker. And I've said to him, even today, I said in front of everybody at the funeral, I've said, I've always wanted to see us hire Dustin because I think he would be a tremendous blessing to our staff. But as I was hearing him today give his eulogy, the first thing he said when he got up, he said, you know, John is always kidding around about hoping to hire me one day at Pasadena. He said, the thing is, he's never even heard me speak. And now I'm fixing to speak at my grandmother's funeral, so I don't know how this is going to be. Humility. As he was telling stories about his grandmother, he never mentioned any of his athletic accomplishments at the high school level, at the collegiate level at Florida State, in the NFL, nada. All the stories he told today were about his, not only about his grandmother, but most of them were about when he was a kid and how when he would get in trouble, his grandmother would take the ruler, you know, and spank him on the hand with the ruler and discipline him. And he was telling funny and good stories, and he was really honoring his grandmother. And I'm just sitting back there listening to this. Now, Dustin is the only NFL player I know. I don't know anybody else in the NFL. But as I've thought about that, I've, I have thought, I wonder how many NFL players could speak to a congregation of a couple of hundred people where you've got a captive audience for those moments you're the center of attention in a setting like that everybody's rooting for you and hoping you'll say something really good so it's an easy setting to speak in in that respect and yet how many of those NFL players would never mention that they play in the NFL I mean had I not mentioned it of course everybody but had I not mentioned it it never would have been spoken and I just thought at least for me. Now, I don't have any other players to compare him to. He's the only one I know. But that is a spirit of humility. It's a spirit of somebody who doesn't think less of himself than he thinks of the rest of us. It's just that he thinks of himself less. Does that make sense? In other words, he just, he's, not, he's not impressed with his status or his whatever. He's humble. When it says of Caleb that he has a different spirit within him. I don't know if God was, I don't think God with Caleb was specifically talking about humility. I think it probably included that. But in Caleb's case, he was talking about faith and a can do spirit. Nothing is impossible with God. We can possess this land, God has given it to us. I want to say to you tonight in life, sometimes we're all in the wilderness, we're going around in circles. Today feels like yesterday. And yesterday felt like last week. And we think, will it ever be any different? One of the things that God wants to teach us is that He has more in His mind for us than we have ever experienced. And if we, like a young Billy Graham, could say to God or to, to another friend, there's got to be more to the Christian life than I've experienced. 
God would be touched by that. And God would keep the promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God will give us what it is we're hungry for if, in fact, we're hungry for more of Him. Amen? Father, tonight I thank You for this passage of Scripture. I thank You for the example of Caleb and the example of Joshua. And God, may we learn to follow their example, even if we're the ones giving the minority report and everybody else is telling us what can't be done, it's impossible, the, the, the challenges are too big, the, the giants are too big. We're like grasshoppers. God, help us not to let that get down in our heart. Help us to know that we're well able because greater is he than is us than all the giants that are before us. With your head bowed and eyes closed tonight, perhaps this message tonight has spoken to your heart in some way. And you say, John, that's what I needed tonight. I needed a reminder that just because it overwhelms me, that doesn't mean that it overwhelms the God who's living in me. Would you ask God tonight to help you see your giant from His perspective, not from your perspective? Now, some tonight have not yet been saved. There's never been a time in your life where you asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart. And so tonight, if that's you, would you pray this prayer? Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me, and I trust you to do it.